Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, my guest today is someone that I find really fascinating, Joe McKinney. Joe is the CEO of the Cantaba uh, Energy Zone and the founder of Startup Societies Foundation. And I, I've only known Joe for maybe a month, a couple of weeks, but you know, of all the weird shit that comes across my desk, <laughs> this was even weird for that and interesting. <laughs> and so I found it really exciting and I asked Joe to come on the podcast. So Joe, thank you for joining us. For sure, Bradley, it's an honor. So, you know, you're known as a leader in the kind of governance as service industry, as a service. What does that mean? So traditionally in governance, um, you usually have sort of a, a servant and master sort of mentality. You have the governed and the governors versus startup as a service indicates two things. One, that, you know, you're providing it in the same way that a company does, that your, your customers are not your, your, um, your slaves or people that you, you, you have directives to. They're the people that you're serving. And also in that same sense, you are, you're nimble and you are agile towards their needs versus the other way around. So basically, in some ways, it's just sort of really, really good at customer service in some ways, kind of what everybody should be if they could, right? Right. That's a good way to put it. So startup societies, you know, this is a kind of a, a trend that I think if you're in tech and venture, you're aware of it. But my guess is most people, including our listeners, are not. What is a startup society and why did you decide to do one? So really simply, a startup society is any form of new community that is innovating in governance. And that's a purposely broad term because there's a ton of these different experiments and they're often siloed with each other. And they may not on the surface of it seem like they're related. These are things like intentional communities. These are online communities and like on Discord or Reddit, but also blockchain technologies and, and innovative jurisdictions like special economic zones, charter cities and new cities projects. And the core thing that connects them all together is that they're experimenting in governance, whether that's socially or infrastructurally or through law itself, in a way that can allow the level of governance to improve overall by demonstrating on a small scale, which should potentially happen on a larger one. Got it. That makes sense. And so let's go to Kataba specifically. You've got, you put together something that I've just never seen before, which is why I was so fascinated by it. Explain what you're doing, how you did it, and how you see it functioning. One core thing to mention is that I'm not doing anything. The Catawba Indian Nation are. I'm just think they are my boss. I'm I'm the CEO of the for-profit company that's managing it, but this is their initiative, and I'm just honored to be along the way. Got it. Yeah. So what are they doing? Exactly. Good point. So they just passed a law just a couple of weeks ago enabling a new jurisdiction within their Indian reservation that has its own commercial code and regulatory body. And this commercial code is best in class in the world. And the regulatory body is a nimble organization that can create regulations for securities, banking, and everything that touches digital assets. And the goal of it is to be the best jurisdiction in the world for Web3. So you've got now, because you know Indian reservations and tribes are sort of sovereign within the United States. Um, so they have the ability to create their own rules, like you just said. So this thing exists now. And what happens with it? And like, why is there a societal need for what you're talking about? Well, in general, there is a lack of good governance when it comes to, well, uh, economics and, and, and governance in general, but specifically in the Web3 and digital assets space. And this isn't even ne necessarily a case of too much regulation. In fact, one of the biggest problems is a lack of clarity over existing regulations. How are digital assets treated? How are they treated under existing commercial law? You know, what's the regulatory treatment? What is the consistency of all of it? And as a consequence of this ambiguity, you have companies around the world that are generating 
you know, sometimes up to trillions of dollars worth of value. Um, they're, they're, they're going to jurisdiction to jurisdiction trying to find stability. This provides that stability and safety to innovate in this new industry. Right. So, so most people kind of incorporate in Delaware and kind of live by those rules. And right. obviously, Delaware has made a lot of money by trying to be as flexible as they can for, for a state government, right? right. I, one of the things that's amazing about what you're doing is you're disrupting a state, right? So tell me why Web3 companies say instead of, you know, when they're lawyers at whatever firm says you have to incorporate in Delaware, and then they push back and say, no, I saw this thing in South Carolina that looks much better. Um, how do you, how does it like, what, what would a typical Web3 founder look to you guys for? And what would it mean if they are registered with Catawba and not with the state of Delaware? Well, let's start broad strokes before we get into the specifics. The broad stroke is Delaware is like any other big incumbent. There's a reason why, why taxi medallions were, were super helpful. They, they, they had legitimacy, they had momentum and the drivers, you know, they provided a relatively good service, but like all incumbents, they, they gradually increased in price and decreased in quality. And it's the same with Delaware. They had this momentum because of the case law behind them, the history and the momentum of Silicon Valley firms going for it. But in terms of innovations, legally speaking, like in terms of uh, incorporating digital assets under existing law or digital companies, they haven't been doing that. In terms of creating a streamlined uh, uh, procedure for setting up companies, they're not doing that. In fact, they're retrograding in some cases. They used to do faxes, but now you have to mail more uh, more things to Delaware than you did in the past. Their digital platform is is, is, is not very good, to say the least. Um, so that's one of the core elements. They are not treating uh, their customers as they should, as a, as a business should, and are not accommodating legally and technologically towards what Web3 wants, which is incorporation under existing law, digital assets, and providing a technology platform to do it seamlessly. Right. So so if, if I'm the founder of a Web3 company and I'm debating between Catawba and Delaware, everything that you said to me sounds like Catawba is going to be more efficient, more responsive, better customer service, all of that. Is that the primary distinction or, or are there others too? I would say the primary distinction is incorporating digital assets under existing law and creating streamlined regulations for things that touch digital assets, whether that's digital banking or whether that's securities or insurance. And we're going to be issuing a series of regulations that make it the best place in the world to do digital asset banking, the best place in the world to do uh, you know, security raises for these types of projects and to experiments in new forms of business models, including in insurance money transmission. So I'm, if I'm a crypto startup and I register with Catawba, um, do, does that mean I can do all the same things that I can do if I'm registered in Delaware? Is there any limitation to uh, my rights or, or access? Oh, no, absolutely. So the rule of thumb with, with American Indian nations is that you at least have the same authority as U.S. states, in many cases, even higher. So why what what are you anticipating? That's probably one of the reasons that we've been talking. Delaware kind of doing in response, right? Because it seems like, as I've thought about what you're working on, there's the really heavy lifting which you guys have done, which is creating all of this. Then there's the sort of socializing it with uh, the kind of whole tech world to get people comfortable with it and coming in. And then presumably Delaware will start to fight back, right? Um, so the question is like, how do you, are you worried about that? Like what's, what will they tell Web3 companies why they shouldn't work with? Well, they're going to say the same thing that every incumbent does. Like we have been here for a while. We're big. You know, why would you change to something new? But they won't really make a big change about it. There might be sort of a PR push, but ultimately, I think that's going to backfire for a lot of reasons. 
Um, for one, there's nothing more bipartisanly supported than American Indian nations right now. Yeah. You know, a pushing back on that will not be a good color for them, especially when the name of their state is actually derived from a, a native tribe that's no longer located in the state of Delaware. Um, and uh, in terms of any legal pushback they can have, it, it's nil. Um, as because of under constitutional law, states do not have authority over tribes unless it was consensually given to them um, by the tribe or by Congress. And in no way, shape or form has Congress nor the Catawba Indian Nation given any authority to Delaware. And since Delaware has a relatively small uh, you know, political base, I don't imagine that they're going to have that much sway over Congress. So I, I register with Catawba. I get sued. How do my kind of rights and protections vary from, from Catawba to Delaware or some other state of incorporation? Well, not really. I mean, so our, our, our basic uh, uh, legal code is based off of templates that, you know, very standard organizations are in the United States, like the Uniform Law Commission, which has, you know, the uniform commercial codes that are used by all 50 states. Uh, also, the American Bar Association and the rest of the 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 you know, commercial code is based off the restatements of uh, common law by the American Legal Institute, which are baseline legal texts that every single attorney and judge knows across the United States. And is in fact, the synthesis of all common law rulings across not just the United States, but the world and is used to influence policy. But rather than, you know, having all the log rolling and just weird special interest that, you know, populates, uh, you know, uh, state level codes across the years, this has none of that. It's a clean code that is respected and known by attorneys all around the world. And it was, is the code kind of the regulatory platform that you guys built, was it designed with Web3 in mind or was it sort of designed to be able to take on, you know, any corporation that wants to register? Yeah, it, it, it's designed to take on any incorporation that you want to register. You have that baseline statutory level uh, a com, a, a commercial code, and then you have the regulatory body, a nimble organization that's able to build regulations on top of it. Because we have a, a basic, you know, banking, a banking commercial code, you know, secure transactions, what have you. But on top of it, we're building regulations for chartering banks and allowing for them to manage digital, digital assets and to even lend based on deposits in those digital banks. Right. So, yeah. So I, cl clearly there's just there are just more things you can do. And is there a network effect where as more Web3 companies or Web3 start, start to register and incorporate with you guys, does that then kind of create a, a flywheel of any kind that really pushes Web3 forward? Exactly. This is the beautiful thing about it. We're a technology platform as well as a social, uh, uh, you know, a jurisdiction. And the more that you have people within the system, there's more incentive to register a company within there so that they can do transactions under the same legal code and regulatory code, because there is a significant amount of benefits to intrastate uh, transactions that allow for all the companies involved to be under the jurisdiction of solely the Catawba versus other jurisdictional entities. Um, do, do you worry that if someone is registered with Catawba and then they need a bit license from the state of New York or a money transmission license from other states, that they'll have a harder time getting it because the regulators will say, we, we don't recognize this as sufficiently rigorous or legitimate? Well, one of the beautiful things about the U.S. Constitution um, is that they require a government-to-government -government relationship with uh, American Indian tribes. So it's not going to be like a negotiation that like Coinbase has with the state of New York, where they're trying to you know, create a deal that allows them to be more 
uh, streamlined or what have you, uh, they are required by law to you know come to terms or at least have a, a good faith negotiations with them. But also, like you mentioned, uh, even in the worst case scenario, which we don't expect, this actually incentivizes the network effect. Instead of registering your entity within New York, uh, you would instead register a Catawba entity. And those even individuals that are within the state of uh, in New York or, or other jurisdictions, they're going to have an incentive to create a legal entity within the green or zone precisely so they can do business and not have to deal uh, with with uh, the arm of uh, of, uh, of New York. So so that so if you are a new crypto trading platform and you register with Catawba, you can execute trades for New Yorkers without a bit license. Exactly. And that's the really core thing right there. And it's the realization that creating a, a, a legal person within the zone puts it under the jurisdiction of the Catawba. Sometimes when American Indian tribes have been trying projects that involve uh, non-American Indians, what they've do, been doing is they've been dealing with legal persons. But, and that has created some interstate commerce, which has you know, allowed for other jurisdictions to claim status. But in this case, when you're having a voluntary consensual relationship between a non-American Indian and the nation to create this natural, this legal person, which is, you know, formed under the laws of the Catawba and located under the Catawba reservation, then they have full jurisdiction over it. Um, how did this whole thing come together? Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, um, I, I co-founded the Startup Societies Foundation a while back, about in 2015. And we've been you know, doing a lot of thought leadership in the space, creating an academic journal, a how-to guide for making you know, special economic zones, digital platform for entrepreneurs to you know, find special economic zones, and also just a bunch of trade shows. And while doing that, um, you know, developed a for-profit consultancy arm for policy consultation and technology po- uh, consultation for different special economic zones. And along the path, um, we were informed that the Catawba Indian Nation had been trying to make a special economic zone. But the problem was that they weren't really able to make it work with the specific requirements that they had. Namely, they they weren't able to find a way to do it profitably while not having a bunch of land um, that is set aside for it. And then, um, so they brought me on board to it and I I took a look at it. And initially I was thinking, this isn't going to work. You know, like most, you know, Americans, I thought that, American Indians were paper tigers. They have, you know, laws and they have constitutional rights, but, you know, they're not real. They're not true. Um, I found out it's the exact opposite. They have enormous authority and not only in theory, but in practice. The problem is that they haven't had capital in the correct structures to make it happen. And that's precisely what this structure does. A private special economic zone that's geared to the digital asset industry that has a legal person attached to a a natural person. That's the key for success in all of this. So we've been working with the nation on developing this framework. Well, me personally, for three years, the project existed for six um, and then uh, at the beginning of last year, we got our boots on the ground. Me and my wife, we moved uh, to South Carolina, 20 minutes away from the reservation, 20 minutes from Charlotte. And we started engaging with the attorneys in, uh, in, in the business arm that we've already been engaged with, as well as the nation's attorneys and their outside legal counsel, Hobbs Strauss, which is one of the biggest Indian law uh, firms in the United States. And we work with them to develop a legislative package in parallel to that. And, uh, you know, Shout out to my wife for, for engaging this. She has a PhD in special economic zones and has had a focus on community engagement with all this, which is super key. And this, this is what I've been so proud of. This is one of the first grassroots movements for a special economic zone. We, 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 we sat down with them two times a week at least at Golden Corral 
gave out printed materials. You know, you know, we all ate lunch or breakfast or dinner or what have you. And then we just talked. And um, it, it's so interesting. And I swear this is the case. It sounds like propaganda, but I swear it's not. You know, everyone that we talked to, even people that were extraordinarily antagonistic towards it initially, said, I have questions or this sounds weird or I don't get it. You know, at the beginning of the meeting, it, it, it might have started out stiff. At the end of it, I swear they would say, oh, holy crap, I get it. This makes total sense. This helps our nation so much. This this is a way to empower us economically and, and politically and legally and, and, and job opportunities for it. Why why haven't this been done before? Why can't we move on it faster? Right. And so we kept doing that. And we went door to door and we, we, we mailed materials and we secured a special meeting for this to be voted on by their general counsel, which is their legislative arm, which is essentially all Catawba citizens voting. Mm-hmm. And we got in a room and we got all together and you know answered final questions and then it was overwhelmingly passed and now now it's a legal reality and now we're, we're building it out precisely to serve everyone around the world and make sure that Catawba Indian Nation is a leader so it's obviously not lost on you that most of the time when people think about economic development on reservations they mean casinos right yeah and this is obviously a very very big contrast to that is this something that you think other tribes water should do as well? Or does the fact that Catawba has it mean that there's no need for anyone else to do it? So I, I do think that American Indians should find ways to structure their legal systems as a way to become a full jurisdiction. Across the United States, this is a huge problem. Most uh, American Indian nations don't have full commercial codes. They don't have the ability to attract what, you know, in normal special economic zone terms would be uh, a, f- a foreign direct capital. Um, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, we don't want to. We want to make sure that you know non-American um, Indians have land rights. I mean, they can't under U.S. law. But the ability to do projects under a stable commercial code, under legal entities within the jurisdiction of the tribe, that's really important. Not just from from a revenue standpoint, but economic development standpoint, a job standpoint, and also just flexing those sovereignty muscles that have atrophied. They've certainly gotten better with. Um, with casinos and gaming. And I'm, I don't want to deprecate that at all. They've been instrumental to giving real half to Native American tribes over the years. Um, however, we need to imagine Native American tribes is not this anomaly or this one-off thing. They are jurisdictions. They are governments. And this is the type of model that can really help. So, yeah. So let's take a step back to sort of the concept of startup societies overall. Um, and, you know, as you defined earlier, it, it could mean a lot of different things and it could be a pretty narrow definition. But I think when people think about what that might mean, it's, you know, someone trying to create a new model city or city state yeah. with a different set of values and philosophies and everything else. Um, right. are, do any of those work? And like, what's the best one so far that you've seen? Well, the most classic example that you see um, in terms of economic success is Shenzhen. And uh, so Shenzhen was one of the first special economic zones, uh, or at least the modern type uh, um, in, in the modern era. And it happened after um, Mao Zedong died and they were just dealing with a horrible famine. And then you had, you know, Deng Xiaoping and other Communist Party officials like, okay, how do we maintain this thing without just descending into chaos and economic depravity? Um and then in parallel, you had these, these entrepreneurs at the grassroots say, hey, we want to do a business with Hong Kong, but we can't because of all these, these, these laws or lack thereof. Can we set up this you know, special area that allows us to do trade? So Communist Party's officials, including Deng Xiaoping, they, they consented to this and they set up these four special economic zones. The first was Shenzhen. And Shenzhen was a fishing village of about 30,000 people in the 1980s. Um, today, 
it has a population in its greater area of 18 million people, and it has the same GDP as Portugal, Vietnam, or Ireland. You know, just complete and total economic growth. It is. It actually has a higher GDP than Hong Kong at this point, and is seen as the Silicon Valley of hardware. Um, another big example is Dubai. Dubai, you know, you probably people have seen the before and after pictures. It was a desert. You know, there was nothing there, um, and, and and it wasn't really focused on on oil like like their neighbors. Um, but they wanted to grow. So what they did is they created 40 different special economic zones focused on different sectors, and they created them. You know, some, some of the most important ones was allowing for lending based on interest, which isn't allowed in many countries in the region. And as a consequence of it, in just a couple of decades, it is now like the city. How many of your friends have you heard say, okay, I've been to Dubai for this conference, this conference closed this deal. It's insane that that city was not really there just a couple decades ago. And the only re- nothing changed there. And t- there wasn't like a big piece of infrastructure, a big company that moved there first and then started agglomerating. What happened is you just created good laws. You created stable, world-class laws and regulations and governance. And that attracted businesses to coming there. And what we're doing with this jurisdiction is we're taking a next step, you know, next layer of abstraction. Instead of having to physically relocate there, in order to enjoy that jurisdictional arbitrage and good governance. What you're doing is through a digital platform, creating a, a, a virtual domicile to enjoy a best class uh, legal and regulatory regime. Got it. And, and companies in any country could register with Catawba, right? You don't have to be a, right. a US company. I mean, so what, what everyone does is they have to do KYC and AML. And there is a list of uh, US sanctioned companies that we're not going to touch. But yes, unless you're on that list, anywhere from around the world can set up a company. Um, so seasteading, it's, it's a concept that's it's really interesting. Uh, explain it to the listeners, if you don't mind, and then kind of give us an update as where it stands. So uh, it's interesting. See, the, the founding of the, the Seasteading Institute, he's actually on the board of the Startup Society Foundation. So, and my, my, my wife's PhD was actually studying a, a seasteading type project in French Polynesia. Um, and there's, there's two different branches of thought of seasteading. Um, one is the more hardcore, which is I'm going to create a floating platform out in, in totally international waters, like not within the economic zone of an area and then just create our own laws and just declare ourselves as a sovereign. Um, that type of project has had some serious problems, namely what I call the gunboat problem. If you create uh, something out there that says it's sovereign, you even if they are, uh, they are supposedly in international waters, usually a gunboat comes pretty quickly. There was a couple of experiments like this in the Caribbean. A gunboats came within a couple of days. The same with a recent project called Ocean Builders in Thailand, uh, and they came with a gunboat and, 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 and tore it down. In fact, the, the two people that were living there, essentially it was a houseboat, you know, a glorified houseboat, and they literally chased them out of the country. They had to escape to Singapore in like speedboats. It was like a, this huge thing. Um, so that's one route, and I would not recommend that. <laughs> yeah, that's rough, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, another route is sort of the model that we've just been talking about, a, a, special, a, a sea zone or a special economic zone that floats. And that's sort of the project that my wife was, was working on, um, you know, creating sort of special regulations and commercial code and, and tax incentives on a floating platform. And this is super helpful, um, especially in areas that are experiencing a lot of climate change. You're having a lot of, uh, of places go underwater and you need to spur development that, you know, is at least resistant to that type of thing. And if you get to a certain point or a critical mass, so the thought is you can kind of bridge between a special economic zone 
into international waters, obviously in partnership with with a, with a government entity. Right. So I I believe that would be a more feasible route. And as of right now, I the the, the most far along project is kind of in that route. I, I know that there's Ocean Builders is kind of learning from their mistakes, and they're doing a great job, you know, partnering with the with the government of Panama. And what they're trying to do is work with the state to have its own flagging laws. Like it's a flag that's specific to seasteading that would allow it autonomy while at the same time being under protection of a sovereign state. Right. So if you think about it, so crypto in many ways is kind of a rejection of the status quo and people deciding they'd rather just throw their lot in with like-minded people, um, even if they don't know who they are, right? Startup societies basically are people saying, look, the the status quo, again, doesn't work for us. We want to create something new and better, just like you did with with Catawba. Do do you feel like these are all signs that we're kind of heading towards a a new definition of what a sovereign nation is and and what government should be? Or do you think these are just kind of random one-off examples? So I do think there is one trend that exists among all of this. And this is why I got into crypto and then eventually this. It's, it's, It's the ethos that we have for startup societies. Don't argue, build. People are done with it. People, I mean, 2020 and 2016, and I'm sure for a lot of people who, who've been looking closely, they're, they're tired of the arguing and they're tired of, you know, despite all the drama, literally nothing being done, but just gradually getting worse. So they're realizing, okay, something fundamentally has to change, but it can't change by working within, you know, the existing traditional electoral cycle. There needs to be ways that you can have this startup level nimbleness and profound reforms while at the same time not affecting a, a mountain of people who didn't consent to it. We don't. That's what China was trying to avoid. They didn't want to make these large reforms. They wanted to try out something small. So yes, I, I think that's the way it's going. Um, to be clear, I don't think we should be any way antagonistic to sovereign. Sovereignty should be respected at every single level. Every time you're dealing with a, a, a part of, with the government, you should treat them as partners. Even when you're, you, you yourself are a sovereign, like for instance, with the Catawba, you know, the Catawba have their own sovereignty. They don't have to obey by the laws of, of, of other states. However, they should always good, be good partners to those states. They should always, you know, work with them in every way and respect them. Um, so yes, there is going to be an evolving forms of sovereignty with, with digital assets and blockchains and DAOs and, and different forms of startup societies. But at the same time, um, you know, this conflict-ridden way of approaching is not how it will get done. The process will be gradual and peaceful and productive. It's In a, in a way, it's sort of a depressing thought, but it, it seems to me that if we keep going the way we're going in American politics, we're not going to be one country in 20 years, right? Because eventually, in the same way that people, couples decide to divorce, we're just going to say, look, we can't get anything done. We can't agree on anything. Um, this is to no one's benefit. We need to change the structure. Um, if that were to happen, do you feel like you've now got the model for for kind of regulation and economic development that that states should adopt? Um, yeah. Go ahead. So I don't think it's an either or. I don't foresee you know U.S. states becoming like fully sovereign in the near term. Maybe a, a closer approximate is the the Hanseatic League or the the Holy Roman Empire, where you had a very very light touch central sovereign, but you had extraordinary autonomy. I think that's something that we're probably, you know, moving towards. And I do think it's, you know, I I didn't see this when first coming in, but the beautiful karma of this project, the idea that all this has happened, you know, you know, this classic struggle of this, this technology from the West, you know, just, just taking over American Indians and their sovereign land and their history. 
and, and then we're going through the process of it and, and the model that was created and established has become stagnant and decadent and isn't working. And now the beautiful karma of it all is that American Indians leading the way yeah. through technological progress are now going to be the governors and emergently going to be creating this new decentralized structure that's going to get us out of this stagnation, that's going to get out of this, 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 this chaos that has happened. And that's, yeah, it's a beautiful vision. And I'm, I'm so happy that they are leading the way. All right. So last question, then. why wouldn't a state that's really enterprising, kind of crypto friendly, like Wyoming, for example, just take everything you guys came up with and adopt all of it so they could say to, to corporations, Web3, like, look, you get all the stuff you get with Kataba here, plus the legitimacy of an actual United States state. Are you worried about that? No, I'm not at all. And here's why. Yeah. They can't move as quickly as us at all. I mean, for one, the Catawba are a population of 3,000, and they have the Zone Authority, which has a Zone Authority Commission of, you know, five representatives. Wyoming, the smallest state in the union, has 300,000 people, residents, and they have established businesses for, you know, 100 or more years. Um, they have established interests that they cannot move nimbly on. We are a private, specially economic zone trying to generate revenue in a responsible way. So they're always going to move quickly. So even if they adopt, you know, a good regulation, that's great. You know what we'll, we'll be? We'll be in their committee writing down notes. And by the time they go to recess, we'll pass it off to the zone authority and they can pass it by lunch. So it doesn't matter how good their laws are going to be because we can always move quicker. But the question that you also have is about legitimacy. And it goes back to your work with Uber, you know, why would you trust a stranger in their car? Why would you jump in someone's house for a weekend? That's strange. And there's a learning process to that. But once you demonstrate better value uh, and, and, and trust over time, then there's a tipping point. And now the question isn't, why would we get an Uber? But the question is, why would we get in a taxi? And I would say the same about Delaware and Wyoming yeah. too. Amen. So, Joe, how do people find you? How do they learn more about Kataba? And if some, you know, Web3 founders listed said, okay, I want to register, how do they do it? Absolutely. So uh, you can go to katabadigital.zone and there's a pre-registration there and some basic info. Got it. And if people want to find more about you personally, what's the best yeah, way to do that? You can go to my LinkedIn, type in Joseph McKinney. You could also check out our work at startupsocieties.com. Great. Well, Joe, th thanks so much. Good luck with this. I'm, I'm looking forward to both watching it and, and, and being involved because this is, to me, one of the most fascinating developments I, I've seen kind of in the government tech concept for a long time. So thank you for joining us and for doing this. Thank you, Bradley. It's been fun. Cool.